Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. St. James writes that life and death is in the power of the tongue. I don't think he's exaggerating in any way. Years ago, a close friend and I attended an extravagant dinner party for clergy. It was back when we were all Episcopalians and had endless supplies of money. (laughs) Oh, those days are gone. Uh, But we ate aged uh, blue cheese wheels, but they were filled with stilton, so you could get a little stilton and blue cheese at the same time. And there were ample amounts of artistically designed beef wellington and Asian sweetbreads, and not a little a bit of lagavulin, just to help it all go down. Well, at the end of the evening, and after several cocktails, my friend and I shared a conversation with an older, very well-dressed, well-respected professor. And the three of us discovered that we shared a friend in common, a very prominent, famous, impressive friend. Then this elder professor got a look in his eye, and he motioned my friend and I to come closer. And he smiled as if he had something good, something fragrant in his mouth. And he said, you know, I know we all have a history with this person, but I think it's important for the two of you to know that 35 years ago, he cheated on his wife. And that made me lose respect for him, and I would hope that it would make you lose respect for him, too. Why did this person need to say that? What possible good could have come from that comment to gossip, to malign, and to harm our appreciation of that colleague? You know, I'd like to think that I'm a somewhat psychologically mature person sometimes, And I know people are complicated and have complex pasts, and I I hope to heaven that I'm a gracious person. But because of that gossip, I can never see my friend in the same way anymore. It tainted my vision. There is life and there is death in the power of the tongue. That is not an exaggerated statement. And all of us deep down know it. Every grown person here has been shattered, shattered by harsh speech, whether it's manipulation or gossip or fault-finding criticism, or maybe you've been the object of open and group-oriented speculation, just people curious about why you tick the way you do. Well, we've all been hurt in this way. Actually, most people in this room have been permanently damaged by infelicitous, nasty speech, Um, more so than by any other form of harm. Yes, certain people in this room have been the victims of physical violence, but almost all of us have been the victims of malicious speech. There are parts of you that to this day remain murdered by someone because of what they've said. But worse than that, We also ourselves have done it. Who 
who among us hasn't misused our speech to murder the world, to really hurt people, whether you've really injured a spouse's feelings or maybe you got fired because you mouthed off at your boss or maybe you've lost a friend because you were too direct or too curt with them and they don't want to talk to you anymore. Uh, or, you know, I know lots of people that talk themselves into feeling worse. They take language and they weaponize it against themselves. You know, I'm not worth a lot. I'm a weakling. I'll never have what it takes. I can't, I can't be helped. People can actually talk themselves into a worse depression, by the way. If you're prone to depression, your words can actually make it worse. Life and death in the power of the tongue. Well, I want to speak about three things tonight in relation to this passage from St. James' epistle. I want to talk about the power of the tongue, the threat of the tongue, and pessimism about the tongue. And then I want to commission us, actually, to be healers. But we'll get to that. The first thing, the power of the tongue. This is what James focuses on in verses 1 through 5. The power of the tongue. You know, in the Bible, speech is not some minuscule aspect of our humanity. The ability to articulate our ideas and conceptions is inordinately powerful in the biblical record. We see this very early in Genesis. Not only does God create the cosmos through the command, through the word, we see then Adam mimicking God starting to name all the creatures with words. So he articulates some order into being as well. Later, when God has to rouse people from their uh, spiritual slumber, he selects prophets, not to take up swords, but to take up words, to speak the word of the Lord and quicken people who are on their way to spiritual destruction. Uh, and later, he sends his only son, whom John gives an interesting label to, calls him the Word, and the Word became flesh. Um, James's first point in this epistle is that the tongue is a veritable powerhouse. You wouldn't think it because it's such a, a small muscle, but it's a veritable powerhouse which controls very large things. And he uses two illustrations to make the point in verses three and uh, three through five. Please follow along. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder uh, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. His point is that, you know, the... the a bridle compared to the muscular leg of a horse is nothing. Tiny piece of metal. Looks completely um, unthreatening and non-impactful. And yet it's that small three-inch piece of metal that can completely command the direction of your whole journey and the direction of every other muscle in that horse's body. The same thing with the, with the ship, of course, right? is that these things are guided by a very, very small rudder. So the tongue does not look impressive, but he says its influence is almost incalculable. Uh, speech is like a small container. Our words, our speech, it's like a small container for immense power. Immense power. 
Uh, it's much more powerful than a nuclear power plant, much more impactful than mass media, what the tongue can do. That's his first point. It's not insignificant. I, this came home to me uh, via Hollywood, actually. In 2010, uh, they produced a film called The King's Speech. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. It was about uh, World War II and the power of rhetoric in World War II. And it was, it was all about uh, George VI and him learning not only to be king in England, but also learning how to speak as a king because he had all sorts of speech impediments and was terrified to be in public, but he learned and he was coached about how to command a room. And he needed that gift because he had a negative corollary in Adolf Hitler who had mastered the craft of rhetoric. And so we see the power of words as mirrored in these two individuals, the King of England and Adolf Hitler. They both realize the power of the tongue. James wants us to know that our speech is incredibly powerful. It is not simply one aspect of the self. It is very core to the self. More than that, James writes about the threat of the tongue, directly tied to the power of the tongue, but the threat of the tongue. Verses 6 through 12 cover this area. Because for James, speech is not neutral in its power. He seems to think that there's a destructive bent to it. Uh, if you want a Star Wars illustration, and frankly in a sermon, who doesn't? Um, it is the Mustafar of the uh, collective human experience and solar system. The Mustafar is Darth Vader's volcano planet. Volcano planet. I've chosen that because he likens the tongue to fire four times in this passage. Four times. The tongue is a, uh, sets a forest ablaze, sets the whole course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. He's not timid in what he's saying here. And then later he, he, he bashes the tongue even more. He calls it a world of unrighteousness. It stains the whole body. It is a restless evil. It is deadly poison. Um, by the way, James originally writes to the Jewish diaspora, so he's probably writing to a lot of people that were informed by Judaism, and they all knew this because of their own history. Because after idolatry, the chief... Uh, the chief criticism that God has of Israel is its misuse of the tongue. When, especially when they were wandering the wilderness after the Exodus, uh, they are slammed again and again because of their grumbling. Here it is, they had the most miraculous rescue of any nation in human history, and all they could do the whole time is complain about it. Wasn't Egypt great because we had sandwiches? I miss sandwiches. Let's go back to Egypt. Yes, we were enslaved, but we had garlic, and that was nice. That's what they did the whole time. And so they were walloped by plagues, by serpents, all because of their horrific speech. And this is James's point. The tongue is not only powerful, it's very often a fiery red Pandora's box, the contents of which can do untold damage for generations and generations. By the way, I, I see this ministerially all the time, how speech can destroy how speech can destroy a marriage, cause upheaval in a church or a business, derail a life. Many of you have been derailed by speech because you've been living with labels. You've been labeled. People are very good at this, by the way. It has a lot to do with the New Testament conception of judgment. Let me just paste a label on you and reduce your humanity to that particular label. 
And some of you understand what that means because you were, you were seen as the unstable one in the family or the person with ADHD or you were a loser or an, or an ugly person or you were, you, know, you were dumped after all because you were just not quite enough, right? Um, or you were a people pleaser or you were a disappointment or you were arrogant or you were naive. I have a friend uh, who just told me about the last words of her mother to her. Um, so my friend was going through a very acrimonious divorce, and the husband was, as they say in the South, quite a piece of work. And um, the husband had bolted, and she was there struggling, but her mother was in front of her dying on, on a hospital bed. And the mother went around to each child and gave a little bit of a pep talk and said, you know, here's what I love about you. Here's why you're so important to me. You know, I see good things for you. Turns to my friend and says, you know, you are about to get a divorce. It's probably time that you lost a little weight. Because that way, at least, you could appeal to some other man who would take care of you. Those were her last words to her daughter. Her daughter has never forgotten that, and it lives very prominently in her head. But you know what that's like in some way, right? Somebody said something to you that you can't shake, and it lives in your head year after year. Um, so speaking, it's very powerful, often very, very threatening, can do untold damage. By the way, that's what's so hard about my work and Chad's work and Dawn's work. Like the passage started by threatening all of us, which I thought was not nice. And so when people that teach, right, you should be careful because you'll be judged more harshly. By the way, that's ambiguous in terms of who's doing the judging, people or God, but either way, it's scary to me. Um, but the reason is because in ministry, like we're here to present to you through word and sacrament, the word of God, right? Like that's what we're called to do. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but I, I have to tell you that the misuse of speech continues to be a great struggle for me. A great struggle, because whenever I feel insecure, I get critical and sarcastic. That's, that's my defense mechanism. Yeah? I mean, you understand, right? Because maybe you're there too. But if I feel some sort of pressure, that's how I lash out. And so while I'm doing this for a living, I'm thinking to myself, I've got miles to go before I sleep, you know? How about misusing the, the tongue? And maybe this is why James, uh, because he believes it's so dangerous, so threatening that he's a little bit pessimistic, actually, about the whole enterprise. He wrote something in this passage that I think is um, uh, rather un unhelpful. Yeah. He's very pessimistic about our ability to control ourselves. Uh, by the way, so are you, haven't you ever done that? Like you, go, you, like you have this Christian guilt that you shouldn't say certain things about a particular person, and you're like, I'm not, even if I see them today or at this party, if I see them, I'm not going to say anything to anybody. I'm going to be pleasant and nice. And you do that for like two minutes, and then as soon as anybody else is around you, you're like, I hate that. I just want to, you know, I want to push them into an active volcano. Or if you're nicer, into a dormant volcano. Um, right. Uh, but James is very cynical about this. This is verse 7. Verse 7, we see his pessimism. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. What is he doing? He's citing Genesis chapter 1, where God makes human beings in his own image and then gives them dominion over the whole creation. And James says, we're doing very well, very well, two thumbs up. You can now handle horses with bridles and you make cows work for you in fields. Really, really neat. Very terrific. 
Um, we, we have done remarkable things in the created world, right? Hannibal tames the elephants and rises up the Alps before he's utterly destroyed by Rome. Um, <laughs> Buzz Aldrin walks on the moon. Uh, Jacques Cousteau has explored the depths of the Mariana Trench, and Al Gore invents the internet. We have done a lot of things as human beings. A lot of things. And James' whole point is, so why can't we do this other thing which is much, much smaller and seems much less important? We can't tame ourselves. We can't tame what we say. Why is it that we can't tame the tongue? I think there's a biblical reason for that, why the tongue remains so untamable. Um, it's because the tongue is connected to an even greater organ. The tongue and the heart are made of the same spiritual musculature, the same substance. Jesus said this alarmingly, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Friends, speech problems reveal emotional problems, deep problems. By the way, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus was trying to convince us, you know, your actions really can be corrupt, but there's a corrupting influence beneath the action, which is poisoned emotion. It's not just about adultery. It's about fantasy. It's not just about you wanting to kill somebody. It's about anger. Like, there's an, there's an emotional core that is like magma, and it is, it is bursting forth and very devastating, right? It is, it's, uh... And so, by the way, if you ever really want to know how you feel about something or someone, listen to your words. They'll tell you. Haven't you ever been in a fight with somebody, maybe in your marriage, and you said something uh, that was rather hurtful and outlandish, and then you tried to cover up and say, I didn't mean that, I didn't mean that, I was just mad, I was tired, didn't have enough coffee, woke up too early, the kid, you know, woke me up all night screaming, I just didn't have enough respite, and so I'm really sorry, but I didn't mean it. Yes, you did. Not, maybe not all, the whole, your whole being meant it, but part of you did. It didn't come from nowhere, right? It was seething resentment buried under layers of politeness and uh, all sorts of social constraints. But when those comforts were taken away, you said the thing, and part of you meant the thing. Because that's what the heart is. The heart is deceitful above all things, says the scriptures. And the tongue ain't far behind. Uh, it gives ventilation to the heart. And so James is pessimistic, rather doubtful about our powers to control the tongue. And I remember the pessimism in my friend, uh, my friend who was with me that night when that older gentleman decided to deride our mutual colleague. So my friend was a, a man's man, type A, jock, built like a jock, engages like a jock, not, not a wilting violet. Uh, but this whole event destroyed him. We were driving home and uh, he was oddly silent and visibly distressed. And I said, what's up? And he said, Ethan, it's been 35 years, man. 35 years since this guy had an affair. But he fixed it. He made good. He apologized to the people he needed to apologize to. He and his wife have been happy. They've had kids, four kids. The kids are okay. Like, it worked. It, it wasn't... Obviously, it wasn't a good thing to do, but it did work out by God's mercy. And then he said, with tears in his eyes, why did he need to tell us all this stuff? Why did he need to do that? Do people ever let things go? 
And then he asked the key question that made me tear up. Are we ever really forgiven for anything? Or is this just some kind of lie? He wasn't talking about God. He was talking about other people. Can we ever let things go? Or are we just monsters that love the taste of blood? Are we sharks? Are we dragons? Well, that was his question. He was very pessimistic about the effects of gossip and the effect of people to use their mouths to bless rather than to curse. No man can tame the tongue. But therein lies the secret gospel of this passage. No man can tame the tongue. No woman can tame the tongue. Certainly true. But we are not here in this service to celebrate a man or a woman. We are here in this service to celebrate the God-man, the one made like us, the one who bears our sins away, the one who actually does have the power. I may not have the power. You may not have the power. Somebody's got the power. And somebody has promised, promised help to those who ask. Um, this passage, in other words, forces us away from the self back to God because God's intention for us is to begin to use speech differently. By the way, his intention for you is not that you would be forever mute. I suppose that is a way to go, right? He could say, well, you've, you've wasted your mouth for long enough. Time to shut up forever. Uh, but instead, instead, uh, he is, uh, he, his intention for us is to heal the mouth so that the mouth can be a veritable spigot or wellspring of blessing. By the way, it is possible to use the mouth for blessing. That's why he says in verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. That says the mouth is divided, but it does also indicate that the mouth can be a source for good things, for blessing. Blessing is at least a possibility. And we see a blessed mouth in Jesus Christ because he was someone who never used his mouth to destroy people. He would challenge, but he would challenge for people's well-being. He would console. He would rehumanize people with his speech. It wasn't just his deeds that were miraculous. It was his words. They gave people new life, new energy, new dynamism. And so I think that's his intention for us who are destined for Christ-likeness to use our mouths in not dissimilar ways. So let me talk in closing about the anatomy of a healer. Just three basic points of the anatomy of a healer because I think this text commissions us to be healers, to use our mouths for blessing rather than curse. First, healers have ears. That is, healers have ears that hear our mouths. By the way, sometimes corrosive speech is so normative from us that we can't hear it at all. And especially if we're a fault-finding person, we may not even realize the depth of our sin because it's very unlikely that anyone will confront us about our misuse of speech because they are terrified to be slandered by us. So if you are hypercritical, I guarantee no one has ever told you that because people are terrified to do so. Um, but, but we need to have ears that can hear, to quote Jesus, and not just ears that can hear God, but ears that can hear ourselves. What are we saying? And why are we saying it? By the way, uh, our, the violence of our speech can be directed toward people we know and people we don't know. By the way, uh, why am I, why are we bashing presidents? I'm just curious. Former or current? Who cares? They can't hear you. 
They don't care what you say. And you have changed this many people's opinions with your opinion. <laughs> no one cares. It doesn't work. The negativity just bounces around the universe and just makes people more negative, not more informed. Same goes with people that we know. The only way that we can stop, though, is to hear ourselves. So, Lord, give us ears to hear our mouths. Second thing, healers have hearts. Healers not only have ears, healers have hearts. Hearts that realize our speech problems always begin as emotional problems. There is a basement of the tongue, and it is the heart. I personally think, friends, that we curse others to the degree that we hate ourselves. I know I'm sounding a little shrinky right now. I don't care. Um, if we grew up internalizing a lot of negativity or a lot of conditional love, it is very easy to feel worthless and negative, and we will often express that feeling of worthlessness and negativity toward others. If that's all we know, if that is all we have eaten, breathed, and drunk for 30 years, that will come out of us. Um, but what I find, friends, is the gospel can rewrite our heart's narrative, our heart's script. Because what does the gospel teach us? Even though we are inundated with sin and corruption and recidivism and bifurcation, the scripture declares to all of you that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, that you are justified freely by grace, that you are being sanctified in God's kingdom, that you are loved beyond worthiness and unworthiness, that you are the treasure of God's heart, that you are the apple of God's eye, that you belong to God no matter what, that you are permanently secure from all alarms. That's the word of God to you. And if that can begin to live in you more largely, in your heart, taking over room by room, artery by artery, so to speak, that will reflect in your speech. I really think our spiritual halitosis is a heart problem. And so I, I hope that you'll be in contexts that speak the gospel into you that can therefore change how you speak about other people. By the way, this happened to me in a very beautiful way. I was telling Dawn about it a few months ago. I was at this very swanky pastor's retreat, and the food was very good, very good. But more than the food, the spiritual stuff was fine too. And one of the things that was so helpful about that retreat is uh, everybody met with an a, a analyst every day. So I met with this analyst, and he was, he was this old sweet Methodist minister. And, uh, and he said, Ethan, I noticed that you used the, um, the language of weakness about yourself a lot. You feel very timid and very weak. And he said, is that really how you understand yourself? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And he said, that's stupid. I'm like, what? You're not supposed to say that to me. You're supposed to say, I hear what you're saying. Tell me more. But he didn't. He called my opinion stupid. And then he said, look, in this business of ministry, you don't survive 16 years in a church plant if you're completely, if you're like a completely weak, pathetic mess. Like, you just can't. It's actually not possible. He said, I think there's a better way to understand your position. It's very helpful. He said, no, 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 you're just learning to be strong in God. I'm like, oh. Do you see how that's radically different? Help me very deeply. Well, God wants to apply something like that to you. Some sweeter word so you can start living out of your true heart. Yeah? So healers have hearts. And lastly, healers use words. Words not as poison, not as fire, not as curse, but as blessing. As blessing. Because words can heal. How do I know? Because words have healed you. Words have healed you because somebody came along and interspliced something good and noble into your life that actually pivoted you in the right direction. 
You wouldn't be here otherwise. This whole service is filled with words. You're going to hear a lot of words tonight. After the absolution, you're going to hear four words from Scripture that are trying to convince you that you really are loved, even if you don't believe it right now. Maybe someday you will. That it's going to be okay. Because God has dealt with it in Christ. Those are words that heal you. Well, I'm going to close with a story. It's a true story. Years ago, I spoke at this church retreat in Jersey. And uh, this young, very Jerseyite, haggard father came to me expressing uh, profound and regretful disdain for his nine-year-old son. He had the son when he was himself very young and didn't really know how to parent, and his parents were, well, a piece of work. So he's raising this nine-year-old kid who's insufferably rebellious, socially obnoxious, and even physically violent. He used to swear a lot and call his parents all sorts of horrific names. And the dad said, look, I'm always screaming at him. I'm always trying to shut him up. I'm always threatening him. And then I end up calling him names. Yeah. And I just make everything worse. So we talked about it. We talked about the power of words. And we talked about the potential positive power of speech. And I said, look, his name was Stephen. I said, Stephen, look, God has actually relabeled you. You have a script for your life that's full of negativity. God has given you the gospel, uh, all this love in the world for you. In the midst of your, of your um, actuality, God has declared that you are not worthless and not rejected and not gross and not pathetic. You are a justified son of God. So he relabeled you. And what happens if you could relabel people in your own life? So together we wrote this mantra. We wrote a mantra, it's true. And every night before his son went to bed, the father was to hug the kid and say, you are my good boy, and I'm so proud of you, uh, and I love you more than you can ever realize. That's what he said every night of this kid, no matter how the kid behaved. I'm so proud of you, you're my good boy, I love you more than you realize. So anyway, it was like, I think it was like four years ago, the dad wrote me this uh, little note via email and said, Every night I said your cheesy words to my son. And then he said, sometimes I meant them. I like that, the honesty. And although to this day, Jake spends far too much time playing Grand Theft Auto, he's turned into the most loving, intelligent, intuitive, and attentive young man, who was very recently, by the way, accepted with almost a full scholarship at the University of Pennsylvania. I never thought I would write these words, but it's going to nearly kill me to say goodbye to him this fall. But I guess that pain is, in a way, a miracle. Friends, words can heal, you know. Words can heal. By God's grace, we can be healers. I think that's our calling, to turn cursing into blessing and moose afar into the veritable Garden of Eden. Amen.